You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode 257 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As you guys will recall, when we left off last time, we just talked about the federal capture of Port Royal Sound, but how the Federals were unprepared and lacked the manpower to follow up that success with a major drive inland. And so the U.S. Navy would use the Port Royal bases as originally intended, that is, to help tighten the blockade. And then, when all was ready, DuPont and his sailors, backed by the army when needed, would settle the North's account with the despised city of Charleston. Charleston, in fact, soon suffered a catastrophe, but through no effort of the Federals. On December 11, 1862, a fire roared through the old central part of the city, destroying 540 acres of buildings, including St. Andrews Hall, where secession had been debated, and the Institute Hall, where South Carolina's Ordinance of Secession had been signed. But the blaze had little effect on the waterfront and its docks, which continued busily loading and unloading the many ships that ran the blockade. At this point in time, ships running in and out of Charleston, Savannah, and other southern points continued to evade the federal blockaders with astonishing ease. In the first year of the war, by some estimates, nine out of ten incoming blockade runners reached port safely. These daring clandestine efforts were growing more numerous and sophisticated. Enterprising southern businessmen had been busy enlarging and fine-tuning their operations, often forming syndicates with profit-seeking British companies. By late 1861, these transatlantic partnerships had acquired numbers of merchantmen and other vessels for conversion to blockade runners. The best were the fast Clyde steamers from Glasgow. Eventually, they launched sleek, steam-powered, sea-going greyhounds with names like Fox and Banshee that could outrun even the fastest federal blockaders. The largest of the blockade-running enterprises, Charleston's Fraser Trenholm and Company, which also had offices in Liverpool, owned more than 50 ships. The syndicates also set up a superbly efficient shuttle system. 
the blockade runners loaded to the gills with hundreds of bales of cotton would slip through the federal cordon and steam for the port of St. George on Bermuda or for the Bahamas or Cuba. Once they arrived in one of these neutral havens, the blockade runners were safe from the U.S. Navy because the U.S. was officially at peace with Great Britain and Spain. The blockade runners then offloaded their cotton for transshipment in foreign flagships to Liverpool and England's textile mills. In exchange, the blockade runners loaded up with rifles, cannon, gunpowder, and other supplies. In a single trip in 1861, a blockade runner called the Fingal brought in a cargo of 13,000 Enfield rifles, 400 barrels of powder, artillery pieces, and bales of British-made Confederate uniforms. Even later on in the war, with many southern ports closed, dozens of blockade runners still eluded the federal cordon. For example, in one month in 1863, ships that slipped through the blockade brought in a total of 110,000 British and Austrian muskets and 129 cannon from Bermuda alone. Eager to tighten the blockade, the Federals in Port Royal Sound decided in early 1862 to try to close up Savannah, Georgia, and its busy port. The key target was rebel-held Fort Pulaski, which guarded the mouth of the Savannah River. The fort seemed all but impregnable, but a determined Union Army engineer, Captain Quincy Adams Gilmore, decided it could be taken. Later on, Gilmore, like Flag Officer DuPont, would figure prominently in the Siege of Charleston. After seizing Tybee Island, a mile across the water from Fort Pulaski, federal troops under Gilmore managed in late February and early March 1862 to position 36 siege guns, some weighing 8.5 tons, on the island's north shore. Working by night and concealing their progress with marsh grass and brush, the Yankees spent more than a month situating their guns. But then at 8.15 on the morning of April 10th, Gilmore opened fire, with his rifled cannon flinging dozens of high-velocity shells at Pulaski's walls. Confederate Colonel Charles Olmsted, Fort Pulaski's commander, said that within moments, quote, Shots were shrieking through the air in every direction, end quote. By noon the next day, the Union guns had knocked out 16 of the fort's 20 guns and had opened huge gaps in the seven-foot-thick masonry walls. The Federal artillery also blasted holes in the casemate that shielded the fort's powder magazine, which was crammed with 400 kegs of black powder. The relentless Federal shell fire and the exposed magazine meant the 385-man garrison risked being blown up in a catastrophic explosion if they continued to resist. So Colonel Olmsted surrendered the fort. In all, the Yankees had hurled over 110,000 pounds of shot and shell at Pulaski, and with the capture of the fort, sealed off the channel into Savannah's harbor. Gilmore and his heavy guns had succeeded brilliantly in cracking open Fort Pulaski, 
But a similar artillery bombardment at Charleston was, for the moment anyway, out of the question. First of all, there was no undefended piece of land where the Federals could sneak batteries of siege guns into place. Such a foothold would have to be seized by force. Second, Charleston's harbor defenses were far too formidable for DuPont and his ships to steam in and knock out with a few broadsides as they had done elsewhere. Charleston was, in fact, an exceedingly tough nut to crack. The city itself lies on a peninsula jutting into the harbor between the Ashley and Cooper rivers. To the south is the marsh-rimmed James Island, and off it two sandy barriers facing the Atlantic called Folly and Morris Islands. The northern tip of James Island forms the southern entrance to Charleston Harbor. There, and on Morris Island, the Confederates had several formidable strong points, including Battery Gregg and Battery Wagner, all bristling with heavy guns. Across the harbor mouth to the north, less than two miles away, lies Sullivan's Island, where Fort Moultrie was located, as well as other fortified batteries. And out in the water, covering the harbor mouth with its guns, was Fort Sumter itself. By the time Major General John C. Pemberton took over the city's defenses from General Lee in March 1862, more than 75 heavy guns could pour fire on the main ship channel. And so the U.S. Navy declined to risk its ships in a direct attack on the ring of forts protecting Charleston Harbor. One naval officer said that the rebel forts could lay down a, quote, circle of fire, and the place was like a, quote, porcupine's quills turned inside out. In time, when the Union Navy did make attempts to blast its way through, the results were largely lost and battered ships and tarnished reputations. The first federal effort to gain a foothold on Charleston's perimeter came in the form of a flanking movement aimed at capturing some of the Confederate batteries from the rear. The opening move of the fighting for Charleston would have the odd, if perhaps fitting name, of the Battle of Secessionville. It would give warning of just how tough the long, agonizing siege of the city would be. The job of trying to smash a hole in the city's defenses fell to the 12,000 Federal infantry at Hilton Head Island. Unfortunately for the troops and the Union cause, the small army was led by Green officers who had virtually no combat experience and who generally lacked the confidence of their subordinates as well. The new commander of the force was Major General David Hunter, an ambitious West Pointer, sent in April 1862 to replace Thomas Sherman because it was thought in Washington Sherman hadn't been aggressive enough. Commanding a division under Hunter was Brigadier General Henry Benham, also a West Pointer whose only field experience was as an engineer. Both men, in the view of veteran regimental commander Isaac Stevens, were plainly, quote, imbeciles. Stevens said worse about Benham, describing him as, quote, a dreadful man of no earthly use except as a nuisance and an obstruction, end quote. 
Well, be that as it may, Hunter gave Benham the job of planning and then leading the operation. Benham's scheme was to land two divisions, totaling 6,500 men, on the lower end of James Island, south of Charleston. Once ashore, the troops, supported by fire from federal gunboats lying in the nearby Stono River, would march up the island and rout the few rebel defenders before they could be reinforced. The troops would then capture the Confederate batteries on the island's northern tip and turn the big guns on Charleston itself. This, Benham confidently announced, would force the city to surrender. Plausible on paper, the plan in reality turned out to be a recipe for disaster. The Federals lost the element of surprise as soon as the first gunboats began to probe up the Stono River in late May 1862. Guessing what was coming, Confederate General Pemberton immediately rushed every spare man he had to James Island. To take charge of the defense, Pemberton dispatched Brigadier General Nathan Shanks Evans, who had won fame early in the war for his holding action on the northern end of the battlefield at the First Battle of Manassas. That would turn out to be the highlight of Shanks Evans' wartime career. But here on James Island, he quickly organized the rebel troops on hand and set them to work building field fortifications across the expected federal line of advance, just south of the tiny hamlet of Secessionville. Taking advantage of the terrain, the rebel earthworks stretched across the neck of a long, narrow cotton field hemmed in on both sides by impassable marshes. By the time Benham got his troops in motion, the unfinished strongpoint was packed with about 500 Confederate infantry under Colonel Thomas Lamar, along with several guns of the 2nd South Carolina Artillery. Apparently, Benham had been ordered by General Hunter not to attack until he'd received some reinforcements. But eager for glory, Benham hurried his dozen regiments northeast across the island, and at dawn on June 16th, ordered the attack. The 8th Michigan, leading the assault, was blown apart by sheets of rebel musket fire and blasts from the enemy cannon. Then the confused Benham, unaware that the cotton field was only 125 yards wide, ordered his second wave, the 7th Connecticut and 28th Massachusetts, to attack side by side in line of battle. With hardly enough room for a single regiment to deploy, the Union troops became hopelessly jumbled together. Into the tangled chaos, the Confederate gunners poured in round after round of canister, which acted like giant shotgun blasts upon the Federal infantry. Still, the surviving attackers charged ahead through what one Union officer later described as a, quote, storm of grape, canister, nails, broken glass, and pieces of chain swept every foot of ground. Then the Federal line shattered, and the Connecticut and Massachusetts troops tumbled backward in retreat, sweeping with them the 46th New York of Benham's 2nd Brigade that was trying to move up. Worse, shells from the Union gunboats began to fall short, killing friendly, friendly Federal troops. Worse still, Colonel Jonathan Haygood, commanding the Confederate right flank, shortly sent the 4th Louisiana Battalion and other troops moving up to enfilade the Federals from across the marsh. 
Yet, despite the dogged defense, the, the succeeding waves of federal infantry gained ground and after a half an hour of furious fighting reached the very walls of the rebel earthwork fort. With fresh brigades ready to go in, the Union troops seemed on the point of victory. But at this critical moment, Benham suddenly lost his nerve and unaccountably ordered a retreat. The frustrated federal units fell back, leaving 683 dead and wounded men strewn across the battlefield. The 8th Michigan had lost a third of its men and 13 of 22 officers. In the 79th New York, 110 of the 484 men engaged were casualties. The Confederate defenders had lost, at most, 200 men. The bloody fiasco called the, quote, culmination of obstinacy and folly by one federal officer caused dismay in the North. Benham was placed under arrest for attacking contrary to orders, and he was stripped of his commission by President Lincoln. Later reinstated, he would, however, never again command troops in combat. To compound Benham's failure, Hunter withdrew all federal troops from their foothold on James Island, abandoning a valuable beachhead that might have been used as a launch pad for further operations. For the Confederacy, the victory at Secessionville came as an enormous relief. Charleston had passed its first trial by fire, but many others, bigger and more bloody, were to come. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well before the Federal Army's bloody setback at Secessionville, the Navy High Command in Washington had been cooking up its own scheme for a purely naval attack on Charleston and its bristling ring of forts. Essential to the plan would be a flotilla of those new and revolutionary marvels, the ironclad warships, such as the USS Monitor, which had slugged it out with the CSS Virginia in a historic battle at Hampton Roads in March 1862. Gustavus Fox, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, boasted that Monitor alone could attack with impunity at Charleston Harbor. Given a squadron of such vessels, it was believed, the Navy could blast its way past the rebel forts and bring Charleston to its knees in a day. Through late 1862, northern shipyards were busy riveting together more ironclads. 
By the early spring of 1863, the first of seven new Monitor-style vessels was being towed south down the coast by a Navy steamer, since the low-decked ironclads weren't seaworthy enough to make an ocean voyage on their own. At the end of the journey down the coast, they joined the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron, commanded by DuPont, who had been promoted to Rear Admiral for his leading role in the capture of Port Royal in 1861. Now, DuPont's orders were to steam into Charleston Harbor with the new ships and seize the city. DuPont, a veteran saltwater sailor, was exceedingly dubious about the plan. The monitor's armor plate might be impervious to enemy shot and shell, but the vessels were painfully slow, with a top speed of six knots, and they were difficult to maneuver. Worse, each monitor carried only two cannon, and although they were big and powerful guns, they were so slow firing that, as one jokester put it, a man could smoke a cigar between shots. Determined to thwart the federal efforts to take Charleston was the new rebel commander in the city, P.G.T. Beauregard. Beauregard had repeatedly run afoul of Confederate President Jefferson Davis so far in the war, most recently after the general's retreat from Corinth, Mississippi, in 1862, followed by his unauthorized leave from the Army, supposedly due to illness. Davis made that leave permanent by relieving Beauregard from command. But Beauregard was too experienced an officer to leave sitting on the shelf, and after Charleston's residence and the governor of South Carolina specially requested that Beauregard replace the locally unpopular Pemberton, Davis sent Pemberton west, and he appointed Beauregard to command the Confederate defenses at Charleston. Whatever his faults, Beauregard was a first-rate military engineer, and he quickly beefed up Charleston's defenses, placing new big guns in Fort Sumter and Fort Moultrie, and adding new batteries on Morris Island at the harbor entrance. Made aware by northern newspaper reports that the ironclads were coming, Beauregard directed that buoys be anchored at measured distances from the forts and batteries, giving the Confederate gunners precise, predetermined ranges at which to fire at the Yankee warships when they approached. He also ordered that the channels into the harbor be salted with mines, or torpedoes, as they called the contraptions back then. Obstructions were also placed that would foul the propellers of attacking vessels. Captain Percival Drayton of the Monitor Passaic noted that by the spring of 1863, Charleston was, quote, almost the strongest place by sea in the world. Beauregard also decided to knock the federal blockaders off balance before the Monitors arrived. On the morning of January 1st, 1863, he sent two armored Confederate rams, the Chicora and the Palmetto State, steaming out of Charleston Harbor. Attacking in the misty dawn, the rams badly damaged two Yankee vessels in short, sharp actions and hit several other blockaders before returning safely back into the harbor. The exploit, while much celebrated across the South, was only a temporary embarrassment for the Federals, although it boded ill for their forthcoming big attack. 
and DuPont's own experiment with his monitors proved to be no cause for optimism. He dispatched one of the first vessels to reach Port Royal, USS Montauk, to bombard Fort McAllister, a small Confederate earthwork fortification on the Georgia coast. Montauk shelled the fort twice, but did little damage. DuPont then sent three more monitors, Passaic, Patapsco, and Nahant, on the same mission. The ironclads were hit repeatedly by the rebel fort's guns, but suffered little damage, yet neither could the monitors do much harm to the Confederates. Glumly reporting that the monitors, quote, offensive powers were feeble in dealing with the forts, DuPont protested to Washington that the only effective way to attack Charleston was with a combined Army-Navy land-sea operation. But neither Gustavus Fox nor his boss, Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, wanted to share the glory of seizing Charleston with the Army. To Wells, DuPont lacked the will to fight, and Wells rather ungenerously concluded that DuPont's reluctance to stage an all-Navy show at Charleston was because he was, quote, a man with a reputation to preserve instead of one to make. In early March 1863, Wells sent DuPont three more monitors and a sharp letter suggesting he act against Charleston and soon. And so finally, on April 6th, the Admiral ordered his flotilla of ironclads into action. A storm frustrated DuPont's first attempt, but shortly after noon the next day, April 7th, the seven monitors steamed in a line up the deep water channel heading for Fort Sumter. Accompanied by Keokuk, a lightly armored experimental ironclad, and New Ironsides, DuPont's flagship. New Ironsides was a ponderous 3,500-ton armored steam frigate with 16 big guns. In fact, in all, the Federal ships had 36 guns to face 80 rebel cannon in Fort Sumter, as well as additional Confederate firepower from the various coastal batteries. As the ironclads approached, Sumter's commander, Colonel Alfred Rett, defiantly raised the fort's flags, fired a salute, and ordered the band to strike up Dixie. The Federal line almost immediately came to a halt as the leading monitor, Weehawken, got its anchor chain tangled with a large raft it was pushing ahead as a minesweeper. With its deeper draft, new ironsides in the center of the line also stopped for fear of running aground. DuPont ordered the three monitors in line behind the flagship to steam around it, and the other ironclads also moved forward. Finally, at around 10 till 3 that afternoon, the Federal ships fired their first shots at Fort Sumter. The fort's gunners immediately replied, first with thunderous salvos, then with better-aimed individual shots. Scores of shells screamed across the water. Near misses threw up enormous waterspouts around the Union ships while dozens of hits clanged and banged off the monitor's armored turrets. Soon, large, angry-looking gray clouds of powder smoke were drifting over the channel, engulfing the Federals. 
One eyewitness said, quote, It seemed as if all the fires of hell were turned upon the Union fleet. The air-splitting cannonade continued for nearly two hours, with the guns in Fort Moultrie and the rebel shore batteries joining Sumter's cannon to catch the Federal ships in a punishing crossfire. The Union return fire was slow and sporadic. The deep-drafted new Ironsides, plagued by steering problems, ran aground and remained too far away to help. The monitors managed to hit Sumter 55 times. Some of their huge 440-pound shells shook the fort, but the walls held, and the Yankee cannon fire did little damage to the fort's batteries. In all, the Federal ships fired 139 shells during the fight, while the Confederate guns got off a staggering 2,200. Of these, about 300 hit the monitors. DuPont, seeing that the attack was getting nowhere, ordered a retreat about 5 p.m. At first, he intended to have another go at it the next day. But that night, his captains reported heavy damage to their ships. Miraculously, only one sailor had been killed, but rebel shells had battered the Federal vessels, jamming turret mechanisms, damaging gun ports, and putting guns out of action. Weehawken had been hit 53 times, Nantucket 51, and the other five monitors had also been severely banged up. As for Keokuk, she had been riddled by 90 hits and would sink early the next morning in shallow water off Morris Island. DuPont reluctantly canceled any renewal of the attack. He told his captains, quote, We have met with a sad repulse. I shall not turn it into a great disaster. The retreat of the Federal ironclads caused wild rejoicing in Charleston and delight throughout the rest of the Confederacy. In the North, the news was met with dismay and outrage. In Washington, Gideon Wells and Gustavus Fox, unable to comprehend what had occurred, bitterly heaped blame upon DuPont. Wells sneered that, quote, a fight of 30 minutes and the loss of one man satisfied the admiral. In a last sad humiliation for DuPont, Confederate salvage crews managed to recover the big 11-inch guns from the sunken Keokuk and added them to Charleston's defenses. On June 3, 1863, DuPont was relieved of his command. That summer, it would once more be up to the Union Army to try to hammer a wedge into Charleston's defenses. But that's a story we'll save for another time. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Commanding Lincoln's Navy, Union Naval Leadership During the Civil War, by Stephen R. Tafe. Tafe's book, published by the Naval Institute Press, offers a good look at the officers who commanded each of the major Union Naval squadrons during the war, and also covers what was happening in Washington with Gideon Wells and Gustavus Fox, and their role in elevating, and or removing, the officers who led the Navy's forces at sea. So that's Commanding Lincoln's Navy, 
Union Naval Leadership During the Civil War by Stephen Tafe. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed. If you follow us at either place, then this past week you saw our reaction when we discovered there's a Lego Abraham Lincoln. And yes, we got two, one for each of us. Anyway, we wanted to say that all of the events we talked about in these last two episodes uh, with Charleston, we've covered in much more detail in a series of five members episodes that we released quite a while ago. So if you're a member of the Strawfoot Brigade and are so inclined, you can always go back and listen to those shows. Uh, Speaking of the Strawfoot Brigade, we want to give a shout out to the newest members who signed on this past week. David, Gary, Jeff, and Tony. Thanks, guys. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll be heading back to Virginia for the start of the Chancellorsville campaign. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.